This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. You'll recall that in my opening speech, I said that there is evidence for God's existence just in case the probability of God's existence is higher, given the five facts that I mentioned, than it would have been without them. This is the standard definition of is evidence for used in probability theory. And I'm astonished to hear Dr. Krauss attacking logic in Bayesian probability theory as the basis for his argument. That uh, is simply unsound. You cannot deny logic without assuming logic in order to deny it. It's a self-defeating situation. Now, of course, quantum mechanics is surprising and shocking, paradoxical, but it's not illogical. It is not as though contradictions are true. So in affirming and going with the rules of logic and with probability theory, I am right in line with rational thought. And if the price of atheism is irrationality, well, then I'll, I'll leave them to it. Now, he says, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, David Hume's argument against miracles uh, is sound. Here, what you need to understand is that that claim is demonstrably false. It is not true. Hume didn't understand the probability calculus. It wasn't yet developed in his day. His argument neglects the crucial probability that we would have the evidence which we do if the miracle in question had not occurred. And that factor can completely balance out any intrinsic improbability that you might think occurs in a miracle. In any case, why well, think that a miracle like the resurrection is intrinsically improbable? I think what's improbable is that Jesus rose naturally from the dead. But of course, that's not the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And you can't show that's intrinsically improbable unless you're prepared to argue that the existence of God is improbable. And Dr. Krauss isn't doing that tonight. That's not the debate topic, as he explained. The topic tonight is, is there evidence for God? And so we're not assessing the prior probabilities of whether or not God's existence is intrinsically probable or not. And so I think that the approach that I'm taking tonight is right in line with probability theory and does show that given the facts that I've laid out, God's existence is more probable than it would have been without them. He says, but there could be better evidence. God could rearrange the stars in the sky. You know, if the stars did that, that would be vastly more probable than the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe that I discussed. And therefore, if that would be good evidence for the existence of God, so is the fine-tuning that I've discussed already. He says, but 2 plus 2 uh, does not necessarily equal 5. 2 plus 2 equals 5 follows from the axioms of Peano arithmetic, which are necessary truths. I, I, I cannot believe that he would deny logical, necessary mathematical truths uh, in order to avoid theism. So let's talk first about the existence of contingent beings. Uh, here I explained that contingent beings are more probable given God's existence than given atheism. Dr. Cross will have to say that the existence of contingent beings is just as probable on atheism as it is on theism. But that seems incorrect because atheism has no explanation for the existence of contingent beings. Dr. Krauss says, well, accidents just happen. Your friend might break a leg after having a dream. But notice that there are explanations for accidents. That's why when something goes wrong, for example, in a space shuttle 
uh, launch, we look for the cause of what the, uh, uh, made the accident occur. He says, well, is the universe uh, contingent? Uh, perhaps the universe uh, it doesn't exist necessarily. My argument was that the universe doesn't exist necessarily, that it's contingent in its being. Scientists regularly discuss other models of the universe that are logically possible. The universe is governed by different laws of nature, and therefore clearly the universe is not ultimate in the sense of being self-explanatory. And you can't say that it's contingent and yet ultimate without explanation because that would be arbitrary and unjustified. It commits what's been called the taxicab fallacy, which is thinking you can dismiss the need for explanation when you arrive at your desired destination. And it's simply arbitrary to apply the explanatory principle everywhere else in life, but then deny it when you get to the existence of the universe itself. What about the origin of the universe? Here he says that the universe doesn't need to begin to exist because we know in mathematics how to deal with infinities, for example, how to sum infinities. Well, of course in mathematics you can do that. Mathematics has certain conventions and rules that you use but to prevent contradictions from occurring. For example, in transfinite arithmetic, the inverse operations of subtraction and division are prohibited because they lead to contradictions. But while you can slap the hand of the mathematician who tries to break the rules, if you've got, say, an infinite number of baseball cards, you can't stop for someone from giving away part of the cards. And so you will have contradictions when you translate it into reality. It may be possible on paper in the realm of mathematics, but it's not possible in the realm of reality. And lest you think that this is not reasoning that impresses contemporary scientists, let me quote from George Ellis, a great cosmologist, when he asks, can there be an infinite set of really existing universes? He says, we suggest on the basis of well-known philosophical arguments that the answer is no, and therefore they reject a realized past infinity in time. Now what about the Big Bang confirmation? Dr. Krauss uh, appeals to Stephen Hawking's model. Hawking's model involves an absolute beginning of the universe. It has a beginning of the, of the universe, though it doesn't have a beginning point of infinite density. He says, but it can come into being out of nothingness because nothing is unstable. This is the grossly misleading use of nothingness for describing the quantum vacuum, which is empty space filled with vacuum energy. It is a rich physical reality described by physical laws and having a physical structure. If a religious person were to so seriously misrepresent a scientific theory as this, he would be accused of deliberate distortion and abuse of science, and I think rightly so. What the quantum vacuum is, is a roiling sea of energy. It is not nothing. As Dr. Uh, uh, Krauss himself has said, and I quote, by nothing, I don't mean nothing. Nothing isn't nothing anymore in physics. Empty space is not empty. Nothing is really a bubbling, boiling brew of virtual particles. And my point is that that quantum vacuum state cannot be eternal in the past. That was the implication of the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem. Listen to what Vilenkin writes. He, said, he, he says, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning.
And given the absolute beginning of the universe, the beginning of the quantum vacuum, uh, God's existence is obviously more probable than it would have been without it. As for the fine-tuning of the universe, all Dr. Krauss said is that the universe is not fine-tuned for human life. I agree completely. It is fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent, embodied, interactive agents, but not necessarily human beings. And the chances of that happening are so infinitesimal that it's far more probable to think that this is the result of design. What about objective moral values and duties in the world? Here, he doesn't deny that objective moral values and duties would not exist without God. Indeed, on Dr. Krauss's view, you do not have objective moral duties because you don't have free will. He says in his lecture, I don't think we have free will. But then moral duties are impossible because it's an ethical maxim that ought implies can. If you cannot avoid an action, then you're not morally responsible for it. And so there cannot be objective moral duties in a deterministic universe. But I submit to you that that is just utterly implausible. And here I'll appeal to Sam Harris in his recent book, The Moral Landscape. Harris says that there is only one person in the world who held down a struggling, screaming little girl and cut off her genitals with a septic blade and then sewed her back up. The only question would be how severely he should be punished. It would not be a question that he had done something horribly, objectively wrong. And yet on Dr. Krauss's view, you cannot affirm that because everything is working according to the clockwork universe. Ought implies can, and you can't do other than what you do. As for moral values, Dr. Krauss says reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, is still there. Well, that occasions a question. Are moral values real? Are they still there? if no one believes in them, not on Dr. Krauss's scientism and determinism. And the irony is that science itself depends upon these moral values. Dr. Krauss has said in his lecture, the ethos of science includes honesty, open-mindedness, creativity, anti-authoritarianism, full disclosure, the basis of what is a moral society. But the problem is these are all illusions on his view, so that science ultimately is predicated upon illusion. Uh, which I submit is implausible. So given the existence of objective moral values and duties, I think it is more probable that God exists. What about Jesus' resurrection? Here, all he said was, how do you connect the existence of God to Christ? Well, you do it in the following way. Christ claimed to be the absolute revelation of the God of Israel. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. If God raised him from the dead, then this is a miraculous event which ratifies and vindicates the radical claims that Jesus of Nazareth made about himself, and therefore it follows that the God revealed by Jesus exists. So it seems to me that Dr. Krauss has got to deny the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the origin of the belief in Jesus' resurrection, because given those facts, God's existence is obviously more probable than without them. And yet that would put him in conflict with the majority of New Testament historians today on a subject about which I think he would admit he knows very little. So given the facts accepted by the majority of historians, it seems to me that it is much more probable that God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead than otherwise. In summary then, it seems to me that when you look at this evidence, clearly God's existence is more probable given these facts than it would have been without them. 
And that's all that needs to be established in order to show that there is evidence for the existence of God. Thank you, Dr. Craig. Dr. Krauss? Okay. Um, we don't understand the beginning of the universe. We don't understand if the universe had a cause. That is a fascinating possibility. By the way, there's the picture of the vacuum that Dr. Craig so adequately described that I talked about. It's not the nothing that I'm going to talk about in a second. It's one version of nothing. That's empty space. That's what it looks like according to the laws of quantum mechanics and relativity. Empty space is indeed a boiling, bubbling brew of particles. In fact, you have mass because of it. And each of these things appears with some random probability, completely contingent. You can't predict. You can't say that, that, that this particle appears and disappears at that place for an instant for a reason. There's no reason. You can predict it. There's no, there's no uh, insistent cause. It's a probability. It may happen, it may not. It's just the way the world works. But the beginning is fascinating. Now you have two choices. You could say it's a fascinating thing and we should investigate it. We should try and understand it. We should try and ask the question, is there a cause? And if, the cause, what, if there's a cause, what is it? That's what science has done. You know, Steven Weinberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, has said science doesn't make it impossible to believe in God which is absolutely true. He says, however, it makes it possible to not believe in God. Because before God, everything's a miracle. Before God, earthquakes were a miracle. But what you could say is, well, I don't understand earthquakes, but maybe I'll try and understand them so that I can predict an earthquake so I can save people's lives in, in Japan the next time there might be one. So what I can do is say, if I don't understand something, I can say it's God, give up. That's it, God's will. Or I could say, let me try and understand it. So the lack, I repeat, the lack of understanding of something is not evidence for God. It's evidence of a lack of understanding. And what we should do, if we're scientists, or anyone, is try and say, let's try and understand it before we go the intellectually lazy route of saying, I don't understand it, so let me assign it to an entity that I can't understand, a divine entity beyond my comprehension. If I did that, if we did that, we wouldn't be in this room today. We wouldn't be seeing these images because none of modern science would have happened. Instead, we try and understand how things work. And the way science works is if there's a physical effect, we look for a physical cause. And so far, there's not a single place in the history of science where we've, been, we've gotten to a point where we can't explain something and, and we know for certain there's no explanation. Every time something was, every explanation that's remarkable is remarkable for that fact. It explains something we didn't think we'd ever understand. That's the beauty of science. Now, and the interesting thing is that, that let, me, let me go to, to discuss nothing. Um, I was going to say Dr. Gates an expert on it, but I won't. Uh, because, but in a sense he is, because he studied what I said. Um, and and I, I've talked about the fact that, that empty space is not empty. Nothing is not nothing. But that's not the, the point is that that's one version of nothing. One version is of, of that, again, defies conventional wisdom that defies conventional logic, that, that a, a century ago, if we'd been having this debate, Dr. K would say something can never come from nothing. Nothing can ever arise from empty space. Empty space is, is, is empty, and the only way you can get something out of empty space is if God creates it. Well, he could have said that, and that would have agreed with what we understood at the time, but it's not true. Now we know, poof, out of empty space, all, you all arose. Out of empty space, all of you arose. Quantum fluctuations in the early history of the universe produced mass density fluctuations, which produced galaxies, 
stars, people. So it's amazing. It's fantastic. And we should, we should, it's, it's just, I love talking about it. I'd rather talk about that than what I'm about to talk about. But, but that's not the only kind of nothing. The kind of nothing that I talked about that Stephen Hawking mentioned is a more extreme version of nothing. Still not, maybe you might argue, complete nothing. But in quantum gravity, if, and it's a theory we don't yet fully understand, but if we apply quantum mechanics to gravity, and gravity is a theory of space and time, that quantum mechanics tells us that space and time themselves, not the space in which these things are appearing, but space itself spontaneously appears. There was no space, there was no time, and, it's, and, a, and a region of space and time spontaneously appears. It's very different than the quantum fluctuations that are happening in empty space, in which Dr. Craig talked about. I agree. That's not complete nothing. It's a version of nothing in itself. It's so remarkable that we should be amazed by it. But quantum gravity says that space and time can come out of nothing, so that, that where there's no space, no time. Now, Dr. Craig, I could let him wait and rebut this and then rebut it again in the next one, but I'll give him a break. You might say, Dr. Craig would say, I think, it is, and I bet he would be writing this note, because I'd be if I were him. But that's not nothing either. Because nothing, at least there are laws. At least there are laws. So the laws were there that, that uh, of which you know, empty space arose. So space, indeed there was nothing in the conventional sense that there was no space, no time, no universe. It's perfectly plausible that a universe can be created where there was no space before. In fact, again, in quantum gravity, it's not only plausible, it's required. It's required that, that you cannot have that event not happen somewhere. But the laws are there. Well, it turns out, the interesting thing about some of the work that Alan Ruth and, and, and Alex Lincoln, good friends of mine, have been working on, and I discuss with them all the time, you will notice if you read their paper, unlike Dr. Craig, that you will not see the word God mentioned anywhere in their paper. Because although they talk about um, uh, a theorem of, of an absolute beginning, they do not in any way say that this proves the existence of God or this is evidence for God. In fact, you won't find it anywhere. But what you will find is an interesting discussion that this suggests that, in fact, that there are required to be many universes, maybe even an infinite number of universes. In fact, in eternal inflation, there must be an infinite number of universes. And, and whether we like it or not, that multiverse may be eternal and infinite. And even if we don't like it, and even if Dr. Craig doesn't like to think we can work with it, it may be the case. It's not up to us to decide. Okay? And the interesting thing about that infinite set of universes is that each of them has a different set of laws. The laws are random. There are prescribed laws of nature in such a view. The laws of nature are completely accidental. And in such a picture, we arise here, but not by any fine-tuning anymore, and I don't know if Dr. Craig accepts the facts of evolution. I believe he probably does, but he can let us know. But this miraculous fine-tuning that he's talking about is nothing other than a kind of cosmic natural selection. We find ourselves living in a universe in which we can live. It's nothing more profound than that. We don't find ourselves living in a universe in which we could live. It's like, as, as uh, uh, Andre Linde, one of, one of, who also has works with Alan Guth and Belenkin on these topics, has said, if you were an intelligent fish, you might ask the question, why is the universe made of water? The answer would be, because if it wasn't made of water, you wouldn't be around to ask the question. And so, in such a universe, it's no more miraculous that we exist than that bees can tell the colors of flowers. 
that animals seem so well designed to their environment. That illusion of design that occurs in nature, in biology, is a process of, of natural selection. We understand it now. We understand how physical processes can produce things that look like they're incredibly fine-tuned. We understand that you don't need supernatural imposition to make what appears to be fine-tuning. But, in fact, you know, the, well, let, let me just say that, that philosophy and, no, and nothing, when we talk, what, what nothing is, to go back, it's something I want, really think it's important, I want to go back to what I was going to say before, that nothing, philosophy has taught us something about nothing. What it's taught us of is that the definition of nothing is that which philosophy has taught us about nothing. Because what we learn to, un to understand when it comes to nothingness is not what we think in our minds, but what the world tells us. This is one kind of nothing. The nothingness in Hawking's theory is another kind of nothing. And the nothingness in which there's no laws of nature, they're random, they occur with different laws everywhere, and physics is environmental accident, is another kind of nothing. Another kind of universe without cause, multiverse without cause, without beginning, without end. We don't know what the right answer is, but we're willing to look at all the possibilities, but none of them require anything supernatural. Now, in fact, the let me go back to the statement I made earlier, which was kind of ad hominem, and now I'm trying to explain why doc, Dr. Craig does not, why evidence, as he's described it, is not evidence of science. A prob, first of all, a probability greater than 50% is not evidence of anything. It's evidence that there's a possibility that a construct might be right. There's also a possibility that it might be wrong. For example, in my own field of dark matter detection, one of the things I work in, there was a recent uh, discovery of several events and the experimentalists that may be due to these dark matter particles. Two events where you predict none. You find that the probability of that, is about not, of that being due to pure accident is, is one part in 10. A 10% probability of that being a mere accident, 90% probability of it being perhaps due to dark matter. The experiment, however, did not claim evidence for dark matter because we don't claim 90% evidence is good enough, especially for extraordinary claim. We require two, three, or four sigma or five sigma effects. So when we have a 10% likelihood that something's an accident, it could be an accident. We never claim discovery based on that. Now, the other thing that surprised me is Dr. Craig claimed, claimed to talk about Bayesian statistics. The key aspect of probability, Bayesian probabilities as we use them in science, is that if your conclusions change dramatically depending upon your prior, then you haven't proved anything. And all of his conclusions, of course, are dramatically dependent upon his assumption that God exists. If you just allow for the possible, the question you have to ask in every one of his cases, from the fact that we're here and we didn't have to be here, the fact that the universe may or may not have an origin, the fact that there's fine-tuning, although I will get in the last minute to the fact that there isn't fine-tuning, the fact that there may or may not be objective values, and the fact that Jesus of Nazareth claimed he was God, you can ask yourself, is it equally plausible that we're here by physical phenomena, that the universe had a beginning that was produced by physics, that there's fine-tuning that happened in the same way as fine-tuning in biology happened, appears to happen by natural causes, that objective moral values may or may not exist, doesn't, doesn't prove anything, and that Jesus may have thought he was God, but wasn't God. Is that equally plausible? I think I'll say, well, I, uh, given that I have 30 seconds left, I think I will just say that the fine-tuning argument, which we'll, I'll get, I promise I'll get to in the next phase, is not fine-tuning at all. The laws of physics can change dramatically 
In fact, what Dr. Craig said is that the laws of nature are fine-tuned for any intelligence is not true. We don't know what any intelligence could be like. What we do know is they allow us. So we got it exactly wrong. They allow humans, but we don't know if any other kind of intelligence could exist. Since I'm told to stop, I'll stop. Thank you, Dr. Krauss.